This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hi there, and welcome to Good For Her, a podcast where a few different hosts are going to be examining the many layers and themes in the films that have us all saying, good for her. For this episode, I'm your host, Nicole, and I'm going to be chatting about David Slade's 2005 film, Hard Candy, starring Elliot Page and Patrick Wilson. A content warning of sorts, this film does deal with sexual assault and abuse of minors, child sexual abuse materials, and suicide. They are plot points, so will be discussed, although not in detail, but wanted to provide that heads up. Let's take a moment here to talk a little bit about what a good-for-her film is, because I think the definition is pretty broad in range. But, uh, simply put, a good-for-her film usually describes a film where a female character typically our lead character, but not always, retaliates against harm done to them in a beautiful fuck-you manner, brimming with moral ambiguity sometimes, and that's to put it lightly. We as an audience may relish in their pursuit of justice while asking ourselves if the means justify the end. Now, this can obviously apply to films that we often think of that fall into this category, you know, rape revenge films, which kind of touches on what we're going to be talking about with this episode. Um, And things like Gone Girl or kind of these dramas, thrillers, horror films that touch on the good for her themes. But like I said, this is a really broad subgenre and it really does kind of go across a lot of different landscapes here. So, you know, even a film like, I don't know, Don't Tell Mom, The Babysitter's Dead could be looked at as a good for her film because it is a female protagonist that is kind of navigating a system uh, in an innovative and creative ways using some, you know, devious methods to succeed. So it doesn't always have to be kind of a, a dour, scary, thriller kind of ride that a good for her film takes us on. It can also be a comedy. So I just want to kind of lay that out. There's obviously a lot of texture to it, but that's what this podcast is going to be covering over many different episodes, kind of the many different channels that good for her can uh, fall into. So I just kind of wanted to establish that framework just so that there's not any confusion throughout the discussion. I want to kind of lay out the way that I'm going to be using pronouns in this episode. So when referring to our main character of Haley, I guess kind of both Haley and Jeff are equal main characters, but Haley Central, I suppose. I'm going to be using the pronouns of she, her, but when referring to the actor that plays Haley, Elliot Page, I'm going to be using the he, him pronouns. I just want that established so it's kind of clear. All right, so 
let's start talking about hard candy. to meet girls over the internet. <laughs> well, I think it's better to meet people online first. Get to know what they're like inside. You work as a photographer, you find out real quick. People's faces lie. Does my face lie? <laughs> that is so good. Do you, do you want some? Sure. <laughs> mm. You look older than you are. You certainly act older than you are. Really? Wanna call your sister? Tell her where you'll be? Maybe later. I'm reading, um, Romeo and Juliet. It's a ninth grade book, but I figured I could have it done before the school year starts. Didn't know you're interested in that kind of thing. You thought since we've been chatting for three weeks that you knew everything about me? We're all shot here? My house is my studio. I recognize this girl. The things you do wrong, they haunt you. This is officially sick. I have never hurt anyone! It's just so easy to blame a kid. Who are you? Playtime is over. Now it's time to wake up. All right, so let's get into this plot synopsis. 14-year-old Haley and 32-year-old photographer Jeff engage in a sexually charged, flirtatious online chat. Jeff and Haley agree to meet at a coffee house, and he takes her back to his place after making her think that he has things back there that would be of interest to her. He pretends to act like it would be an insane thing for her to come back to his place, which entices Haley even more to want to do it, which appears to be his plan. She agrees to go with him and leaves in his car. When they arrive, Jeff makes some drinks, but Haley refuses by saying she was taught to never take a drink she had not mixed herself. Haley then goes to the kitchen and makes them both screwdrivers. Jeff shows her around and shows her his photographs hung on his walls, all of which seem to be of underage, half-clothed girls. As they drink a little more, Haley asks Jeff to photograph her. He gets out his camera and Haley begins to pose, but before he can take any photos, Jeff loses consciousness. When Jeff wakes, he is bound to a chair. Haley explains that she has been tracking and baiting him through online chats and drugged him because she knows that he is a sexual predator and murderer. Jeff denies these allegations, claiming he had innocent intentions. Haley searches Jeff's house and finds his gun and safe. In the safe, Haley finds pictures, including a photo of Donna Maurer, a local girl who had been kidnapped and remains missing. And we saw a quick glimpse of the missing poster at Nighthawks. So uh, it's kind of a, a callback there. 
Jeff continues to deny any accusations and kicks Haley to the ground, which temporarily knocks her out. He rolls the chair into his room and manages to get his gun that Haley left out on his bed. He rolls back to the living room to see that Haley must have gotten up. She comes up from behind him and wraps his face in plastic wrap, choking him unconscious. When Jeff wakes, he finds himself bound to a steel table with a bag of ice on his genitals. Haley explains that she is going to castrate him. Haley sets up his camera to take video of uh, the procedure. Jeff starts to realize that she might really do this, and so threatens, bribes, and sweet-talks Haley to dissuade her. When that doesn't work, he tries to get her sympathy by telling her that he was abused as a child. She proceeds to pull out the medical book to guide her through the procedure, while talking Jeff through it as she does so. Following the supposed operation, which Jeff does not feel due to the ice numbing his genitals, Haley walks away saying she needs to take a shower. Jeff frees himself and realizes he is unharmed. He storms off in a rage to get Haley in the bathroom, where the shower is running. He has a scalpel in hand and he attacks, but finds the shower is empty. Haley attacks him from behind, and as they struggle, Haley incapacitates him with a stun gun. Haley poses as a police officer and asks Jeff's ex-girlfriend, Janelle, to come immediately to Jeff's house. Jeff regains consciousness to find that Haley has bound his wrist and hoisted him to stand on a chair in his kitchen with a noose around his neck. Haley makes Jeff an offer. If he dies by suicide, she promises to erase the evidence of his crimes, but if he refuses, she promises to expose his secrets. The conversation is interrupted when a neighbor knocks on the front door selling Girl Scout cookies. When Haley returns, Jeff breaks from his bindings and pursues her to the roof of his house, where she has lowered him. Haley has brought her rope from the kitchen and fashioned it into a noose secured to the chimney. Haley keeps Jeff at bay with his gun. Jeff confesses that he watched while another man raped and murdered Donna Maurer. Jeff promises Haley that if she spares his life, he will tell her the other man's name so she can exact her revenge. Haley reveals that she already knows his name, Aaron, and that Aaron has said Jeff did it before he had died by suicide. Janelle arrives and Haley once again urges Jeff to hang himself, promising that she will destroy the evidence. Defeated, Jeff lets Haley slide the noose around his neck and takes the last fatal step off the roof. After he, after he falls, Haley says, or not, and Haley gathers her belongings and escapes through the woods. All right, so that is the plot synopsis, and it's a lot, but I want to start by extracting some of the themes and ideas that really make Car Candy resonate to me as uh, an example of a good for her film. I think probably the one that stands out the most and it kind of trickles into some of the other ones that I want to highlight, is vigilanteism. Now, I mentioned this at the top when talking about what a good-for-her film kind of entails for me. A female character needing to take matters into her own hands. And, you know, that can look a million different ways. But when we're looking at films like Card Candy, these good-for-her films that fall within kind of the horror and thriller genres we're really looking at often vigilanteism in the name of revenge. 
Haley makes it explicitly clear that she is not doing this simply for herself, uh, for her own kind of amusement kicks sense of justice. She's doing this in the name of other victims. She specifically has the line, I am every little girl you ever watched, touched, hurt, screwed, killed. So she's really there as kind of an avenging force for all of Jeff's victims. And even broader, I think, any victim of a person like Jeff, a predator like Jeff. I think this is really uh, highlighted in the moment where, you know, Jeff tries to call her out by saying, well, you were here because you, you came on to me. And she just kind of comes at him with full vindictiveness and says, yeah, well, that's what they all say. That's what you all say. And he asks for clarification on that. And she's like, you all, all of you pedophiles are always saying, well, it was the girl's fault. She came on to me. She was young, but she acted like an adult. Um, so she's really seeing herself more as a representation of victims of this kind of assault. I want to talk about the need for vigilanteism in films like this. You know, we're really talking about, again, kind of these rape revenge type films or really where women are taking the law into their own hands to find justice. What I think is really important here is that these films underscore the the unfortunate necessity for vigilantes for vigilantism because the system isn't primed to really serve the victims, especially women. They're not believed when they come forward with accusations of assault, of rape, domestic violence, uh, harassment, anything like that. Um, you know, to even take it out of necessarily kind of violent crime, even if someone's like, oh, well, I was passed over for a promotion because I'm a woman. Well, those can be really gray areas to define, even if everything has been kind of laid out to indicate that that's the truth. The systems are really working against the victim in situations like this. And so there's this unfortunate need to take matters into your own hands to say, okay, well, now I need to, I need to course correct. I need to write the universe in some way. And that's clearly what Haley is doing. The, the method of her being able to do this through the proper channels isn't clearly defined because she needed to be able to find the evidence. Like she could have gone to the authorities and said, hey, this guy is chatting with me. We really, I'm going to talk about this in a minute because now these kind of things are going to blur together. The sometimes the unreliable narrator or character in this instance, but the, the proper channels aren't necessarily available but justice still needs to be served and vigilanteism is kind of the only method at hand because there's no assurance that going through those channels is going to result 
in any kind of action. So I think that that's an important thing to kind of understand when piecing apart, you know, why we still root for these characters, because I think that that's kind of part and parcel of the story. I think what's really unique also about Hard Candy and something that really stood out to me when I was rewatching this uh, to take notes and, and right before I record, the fact that Jeff never expresses any kind of remorse or really takes any kind of accountability for what he's done, he, at the very end, admits that he was present when Donna was raped and murdered. And, you know, again, we, we go back and we see that he has a photo of her in front of the very same cafe that he met Haley at earlier that day. So, you know, in our minds, we're also kind of piecing together a potential pattern of behavior. So he never expresses, like, I feel terrible. I didn't try to stop it. When he puts the noose around his neck and steps off the roof, it's not out of guilt over what he's done. It's simply, I guess, shame that Janelle is now going to find out what he's done. It's not out of a remorse. So that's something that I think also kind of shifts the way that you view the end and you kind of view the actions of Haley because, you know, he's completely, he, he doesn't take any accountability for what he does and, and, she almost has a smirk on her face when he's like, well, yeah, I, I was there. I, I saw what happened to Donna, but I didn't do it. And she's like, yeah, that's what the other guy said to me about you before he died. So I don't know. It's, it really just kind of, again, puts, her actions into a very specific, I think, perspective at the end, as we've seen Jeff go from just a fucking repulsive creep to a fucking repulsive violent creep. I want to circle back to, again, the, you know, staying on the idea of the the need of vigilanteism in this particular world of the film, because I think there are two specific things that also highlighted in terms of the outside world, because so much of this film is in Jeff's house, which is Haley and Jeff. But there are two interactions outside of Jeff's house. Well, I guess not completely outside of Jeff's house, um, but uh, with other people. And I, I want to, to talk about them for a second. The first is at the very beginning of the film, when Jeff is first meeting Haley at Nighthawks. So she's at the counter having a dessert, and Jeff comes up behind her, and she seems to be talking to the clerk. And so 
Jeff and Haley, the, the camera kind of focuses in on um, Jeff and Haley, kind of introducing each other, having a back and forth. They have the repulsive moment of where uh, Haley offers Jeff her, like a bite of her dessert, and he like takes his thumb, takes the chocolate off her mouth, and licks it off. It's repulsive and then she uh, they they talk for another moment and then they order some more uh, chocolates to go sit down elsewhere at the cafe but there's this one shot of the clerk as he's ringing them up before they kind of move and he has this look on his face that was perfection it was just this look of absolute disgust of knowing exactly what is going on and being disgusted by Jeff but the thing is that that clerk does nothing um that we know of there's no intervention there's no and and, you know what can he do what can this clerk do what what is in his power but again it speaks to the fact that you know other people are seeing things happening but there's no help necessarily there the second moment comes uh as as we're getting to the climax of the film uh jeff has just kind of been put in the noose in I think his kitchen at that time so it's before Haley takes it up to the roof but uh, Haley had gone up to the roof of Jeff's house really um, like momentarily I think after the surgery scene and the neighbor played by Sandra Oh sees Haley on the roof and then comes to the house a little bit later and Haley has this gash on her forehead it's very like it's very obvious covered in sweat she introduces herself as Jeff's niece says that Jeff can't come to the door because he's sick has food poisoning and so they have this exchange, but never once is it brought up like, oh, well, you're bleeding. Are you okay? You seem like, it seems like there's something going on. She seems to, there's a couple of moments where you think that the, the neighbor's actually going to, to say that, but she's actually like, oh, also here's the Girl Scout cookies and also you need to pay me for them. And there's that also moment of recognition for Haley when the neighbor says, oh, well, my daughter is a Girl Scout. Jeff bought um, these cookies from her. And Haley has a line of, yeah, Uncle Jeff loves his Girl Scouts. So I don't know. It's, again, these outsiders that, there's every indication that you need to intervene, but nothing is happening. So I think it just speaks again to the need of, you know, 
what channels would Haley have to find justice or, uh, you know, what channels are there for Jeff to come to justice that are kind of beyond what Haley is doing? I think this is kind of what is being posited, at least I think in these moments. The conversation with the neighbor also stands out to me because the neighbor is asking Haley if she's going to be around because she wants to, you know, have her babysit for her child. And in, you know, my mind, I'm sitting there like, you don't know this person and you're just going to trust your child in their care. Oh my goodness. Um, so yeah, uh, I don't know. It's, it's really interesting. I think again, having these outside characters because the film is so focused on Haley and Jeff and particularly in one environment, having these outsiders, I think does, uh, do a good job at, you know, again, shaping and giving us context of, of the world. So switching gears a bit, uh, another thing that I want to mention briefly that's really prevalent in Harm Candy, but is something that's, I think, a staple in a lot of good for her films is the idea of kind of the unreliable narrator, especially when it comes to these uh, female characters that we're kind of rooting for. The information that we're presented about the character, uh, usually at the beginning, we find out that either bits of it or maybe all of it may not necessarily be true and they have their reasons for lying or hiding aspects of who they are or why they are doing what they're doing but like I said at the beginning I think one of the the things that many good for her films want us to do is you know again ask the questions of do the means justify the end and when it turns out that something that we believed to be true isn't true. It then puts that process kind of into disarray. We now have to reevaluate. All right, well, how does this impact the way that we view their this character's actions up to this point? And how is it going to impact the way that we view their actions going forward? And, you know, at the end, does it even really matter? what is true and what isn't. Um, so I think it's kind of an interesting built-in mechanism that, you know, kind of makes the audience really invested in a unique way to the story of, okay, well now I have to do this extra work. I have to question what is right and wrong, especially when we get to the end of the film. You know, did the ends justify the means? Being able to to fill in those blanks, I think, puts us in a a unique position to to question those things in a very specific way. Hard Candy is kind of a unique example here because who Haley is has no impact on what we know and discover about Jeff. It doesn't change the fact that he was participatory in the rape and murder of at least one person that we know of. And you know, again, it goes back to what I mentioned earlier with the stuff that Haley finds. It's never really brought up 
but we understand that there's more. Who Haley is specifically as a person is less important than the fact that she represents not just the victims, but also represents someone that is intervening where others haven't. Now, in doing a little bit of research, before uh, sitting down to record, I came across a piece called Heart Candy and American Crime and Gender Performance in Elliot Page's Early Filmography. And so the author of this piece, it's a really fascinating piece. I'll, I'll make sure it's linked in the show notes because it's certainly worth a read. It was a piece that was published in uh, December of 2020, so I think just after Elliot had come out as trans, and the author is really examining these two performances, so uh, Hard Candy and An American Crime, but I, they also mentioned Juno a couple of times as well, but, you know, I think looking at these films through kind of a, a retrospective lens and looking at these roles as kind of representations of specific types of girlhood experiences. It's a really fascinating piece. I can't, I can't recommend it enough. I think there's some really interesting ideas, but why I want to mention it is because she mentions the very end of the, the film and the fact that we don't know much about Haley in, in the author states that we are ultimately unsure of Haley's actual identity and age adds to a sense of her as an omni as an omnipotent figure in total control rather than a victim turned killer. In hindsight, I realized that the lack of actual rape in my beloved rape revenge genre was appealing to me. I was a sixteen year old survivor who'd been assaulted by an adult man not far in age or sexual appeal from Patrick Wilson's character. I saw someone I wanted to be in Haley Stark and subconsciously exemplified and conceptualized this character as having an experience and possessing a trauma unique to the experience of girlhood. So I, I don't know. I, I, again, I find that that's kind of an interesting takeaway and goes back to the idea of, you know, the fact that what we understand to be true about the character changes I think does create kind of a, a template where we can see kind of a representation of victims we can see a representation of that avenging force for victims both kind of in this character just a really interesting thing so um, again I'll make sure that that is linked in the show notes I think that the author has some pretty lukewarm feelings about revisiting the film, you know, looking at it now that they are a little bit older because they talk about having such a strong reaction to it when they first saw it and how they related to the character of Haley. And one thing that they do mention is just how strong of a performance Elliot gives. So even though the beats of the film may not necessarily hit the same way that, you know, Elliot's performance is truly outstanding. 
And I couldn't agree more. I think Elliot is phenomenal in the film. And the fact that he was 16 when this was filmed, I believe, is just, I think, really, really remarkable. So he really nails, I think, the delivery of his lines, especially the ones that are supposed to have like a certain bite to them. There's just a viciousness that's there and a rage that even in these when Haley is supposed to be kind of in a subdued state or a calm state, there's still this vitriol and this righteous rage that's bubbling. And Elliot plays that just so perfectly. It's really something to behold. Patrick Wilson is also really good in this film. No disrespect to him. He's always given me real fucking creep vibes so he's kind of perfect in this role and there's kind of this escalation of danger and threat within his character that he pulls off extremely extremely well to have someone that can just be so horrifying even when they're restrained because you you don't know what they're capable of you're just starting to get a peek into what they're capable of it's really disturbing stuff and and he does it so well. I just really like this movie. I think it's disturbing. I think it's fascinating, especially as someone that grew up in kind of the early ages of internet and chat and, you know, the kind of the growing concerns that parents and guardians and everyone had about who we're talking to and, and all of that. Uh, you know, even though this happened a bit later in the time frame of all of that, you know, that was always a big thing of, you know, going into chat rooms and chatting with people and pretending to be other people because that was just kind of part of what you did. And that was kind of recommended. Like you don't tell your, your real name. You don't say where you're from. You make stuff up and, you know, you start to, I guess, build trust with folks that you're chatting with. Although it was never really explained how to do that. So, I don't know. I find that really interesting. And this movie also really just feels almost like a play in a lot of ways. I could so easily see this being, you know, a stage production. So, I don't know. I, I find it a really fascinating watch. And when kind of the idea of, of a, a podcast talking about good for her films came about and... I I started thinking about what films really hit hit that note for me. This was one that I I kept coming back to, so I am excited to kind of talk a little bit about it. And I hope I I kind of bridged uh, you know that for for anyone that's listening to kind of connect why I think that this film really deserves kind of that that title of a good for her film and and why. And hey, this is just one episode of Good For Her. I think it's going to be really exciting to hear what other people bring to the table in terms of, you know, what films uh, hit kind of that similar note for them and why. So I certainly hope that you uh, are excited for the episodes to come. To make sure that you don't miss out on an episode of Good For Her, make sure that you are subscribed to anatomy of a scream. I assume that if you're here, you probably are. 
but do make sure that you are subscribed because not only are you going to get amazing episodes of Good For Her, but there's other great stuff on the feed as well. White Ladies in Crisis, they're currently doing the uh, watch through of season two of Physical, which I'm absolutely loving and their their kind of commentary on the episodes is an absolute treat. So make sure that you listen to White Ladies in Crisis. They also cover films when not covering uh, physicals, so lots of good content there. And hey, if you kind of liked listening to me, you can do more of that too on the Bodies of Horror podcast a uh, podcast where I look at horror films through the lens of disability. So, hey, you've got lots of cool things that you can uh, seek out there as well. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you stick around and until the next episode. Scream Pod Squad.